Welcome back to Round the Archives in Conversation. I'm here. Lisa is here. Hello. Hello, Lisa. And Tim Worthington is here. Hello, Tim Worthington. Hello. Yes, I am here. <laughs> Hello, well, Tim. Well, that's good. Otherwise, yes. we'd, we'd be talking to ourselves again. And it, yeah, yeah. That, that does happen. It does. Yeah. But it's been a while since we've talked to you, Tim. So, welcome back to Round the Archives. Well, thank you very much. I was trying to remember what we were talking about last time I was on. Was it Chigley? It might have been Chigley. Yes, it might well have been. Or it might have been one of your books. I, I'm trying to work out. Or it could have been the Double Deckers. Or it could have been the Double Deckers. Oh, it, it, I think it was, yes. But obviously yeah. I've spoken to you both on Looks Unfamiliar since then. Yes. Oh, and you, um, I, I suppose you'd better explain what Looks Unfamiliar is, because not everybody yes. might know. Looks Unfamiliar is a podcast that I present where I don't know... I saw it described as anti-nostalgia once, which makes it sound like, you know, I'm sort of rounding Andrew Collins up in a police van. <laughs> That's enough remembering the 70s you. But no, it's more the idea is that it's a chat about things that the guest remembers that as far as they are concerned, and that's the important thing, no one ever seems to. I mean, this is how to get comments saying, oh, but I remember that. The big one was look around you the BBC Two sketch show, but Lydia Meisen, who was the guest on that, you know, her view was, well, nobody else watched it when I was at school, and it was only when they got on the internet that I even found other people who remembered it. And, you know, that's quite old now, but it can be anything from when you've been on, you had Johnny Man's album, <laughs> you had something that ended up with us talking about a man that Arthur C. Clarke interviewed that had hazelnuts thrown at him in space, basically. Oh, I, he played I, it on the vortex, didn't he? Yes. I, I, yes, I did Arthur C. Clarke's science essay books. Yeah. Um, oh, but, that's right. Yes, yes. But you, you did So Haunt Me, didn't I you, did, Lisa? I did, yes. Yeah. Nobody remembers So Haunt Me. And you also did Virtual Murder as well. Yeah, nobody remembers yeah. that either. Yeah. But, but I was thinking, Tim, there's a whole load of stuff from our childhood that really is forgotten these days. So I, I'd like to take you back in time a bit and zoom in on, like the zoom at the start of Rose, where it zooms in onto the planet. I'd like to zoom in on young Tim watching telly so where would be zooming to and what would you be watching on the telly well it would be the front room of just an ordinary house in liverpool really for you know i am from a very large family i think if you're asking about the earliest things i can remember watching it would be things like finger bobs and mary mungo and midge you know the sort of well, I suppose the Watch With Mother shows that nobody remembers, really. They seem to be the ones that I seem to have an affinity from very early on with what I would call, in a nice way, television where you can see the joins. <laughs> where there's something about the way it's put together, the visuals, the sound, or whatever, where you are aware, not in a bad way, there's a television programme. Because I found that really intriguing, the idea that people have made these things. I remember being absolutely fascinated when I was first old enough to you know, have some notion of this, that Brian Kant, who was on Playaway and Play School, was also the voice on Campbell Green, Trumpton and Chickley. Mm. 
Yeah. And I remember sort of wondering when he'd done them and that sort of thing. And that has always been... That was my route into all this, really, was just being interested in sort of the mechanics of how this all worked, really, which is a lot more interesting than making that sound. Really. <laughs> but some of this is available on DVD. You can you can pick up finger and bobs. Blu-ray, and Blu-ray. And Blu-ray. You, can, you yeah. can pick up fin- finger bobs quite easily. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the Oliver Postgate stuff, which, yeah. you know, I think everyone's familiar with. Though I do believe you were once credited as Clangers expert. Is that right? Yes, that was BBC News when the story first broke about, well, it's quite a while ago now, that they were going to do a new Clangers with Michael Palin narrating. And... Somehow, I ended up on the BBC News channel to give my reaction to that. I think they were hoping for, you know, a sort of proto-UKIP kind of, you know, how dare they touch my childhood Marvel, things were better in my day. And I was all for it, basically, because the right people were involved. And I didn't see anything wrong with doing a new take on it. Whereas, I think, you know, sometimes it is the wrong circumstances. Like, I, conversely... I was asked my opinion on the the mooted. I mean, it's not going to happen, is it? But Grange Hill film that Phil Redman keeps talking about mm. on BBC Radio, and I think they thought I'd think it was wonderful. And I said, "Well, what I think of that is immaterial because the only opinion that should matter should be of children who'd be watching it, and with the best will in the world, if he gets to make it, I don't think Phil Redman would be making it for children. He'd be making it for very jaded adults." who would then say, oh, well, you know, I preferred it when Tucker was, you know, because they will have a Todd Carty cameo and they'll say, oh, oh, he's not 15 anymore, this isn't fair. (laughs) (laughs) But are you old enough to remember the very first season of Grange Hill on first transmission? I think I do. It's all very conflated because, as I say, we are a very large family and there's an extent to which I sort of, if you see what I mean, I remember things that I don't Mm. because they were sort of, you know, folk memory. Like, for example, I am not old enough to have actually consciously watched the Doctor Who story, The Brain of Morbius, Mm. but that was much talked about in our house as, you know, something really scary that had been on. And then, you know, we had the Target novel of it as well. So there is that effect. But I am convinced that I remember... Was it was the first season repeated? Because I'm sure I remember those opening scenes, that first episode. And that's not, you know, when I saw them again, I thought, oh, I remember that. I remember those images in my mind thinking of it. So it will, it will have been on. And obviously, somehow I was old enough to absorb it. Going slightly earlier, though, there are shows that even now I've not been able to track down, but I have very, very vague memories of. For example, is it The Small World of Samuel Tweet? That's the pet shop thing with uh, Freddy Parrot Face Davies. (laughs) (laughs) But I've never been able to find any footage of it. Yeah, some things have just vanished. Have you ever heard his single, by the way? I have. I have heard his single. Cynthia Crisp. (laughs) (laughs) On Looks Unfamiliar, when we occasionally were were knocking around ideas for what we could cover, I did suggest Sam on Boff's Island, and somebody had just got there ahead of me, I I remember. Yes, that was Merrill O'Rourke, yes. I guess, was that news to you, that show? I was aware of it, and I'm not sure how or why, because it's not something that gets mentioned at all. It is. It is not the ultimate lost small films production, because... 
there were things they did very early on, like Little Laura. For, for a long time, I couldn't even find out whether that was on ITV or the BBC. I think it was ITV, but that would just be mentioned in passing the same way as... It's so hilarious to look back now. It used to frustrate me so much when, you know, there would be overviews of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson in, mm. say, like, Looking or TV Times, you know, in the days when this information just wasn't to hand. And they would always mention, and basically say, oh, yeah, and there was Secret Service. Well, not the Secret <laughs> Service, just Secret Service. <laughs> and it was kind of... You know, a lot of small film stuff is kind of like that, but some of Boff's Island has slipped into that category as well, which, when you think it was a school's programme, and it was shown quite a few times, it's odd that it's not more remembered. But, yeah, I had not... I didn't see it at the time, I don't think. But I had seen... There was a clip of it turned up on something in the 90s, I remember. It wasn't... It was before, before they were famous, but there was something where they had a clip of Tony Robinson on it. I remember thinking, oh, right, I've seen a bit of it now. <laughs> How much do you find that when people suggest stuff or uh, looks unfamiliar, that sometimes you just can't find any information on it at all? Because I know, for example, one of your obsessions is the show Ski Boy. Uh, yes. And I had never even heard of that till you mentioned it. So I like to think we know a fair bit about old telly but when when you came up with ski boy i i just went what the hell is that well a lot of people have actually at the time when i first did that feature about ski boy some people genuinely thought because it is not beneath me to slip jokes you know about non-existent things into things as an actual joke not an attempt to fool people and there were certain parties thoughts i have made up ski boy and i found some old you know early 70s European film and taking stills from it and made up this story about Derek Sherwin fresh from Doctor Who pitching a series to Lord Grade about a boy who skis and solves crimes in the Alps <laughs> but absolutely real I can assure you of that I mean occasionally I will go through YouTube and just look at title sequences of stuff so sometimes I have a hard time convincing people um, that there were like American shows, for example, like, like the Flying Nun. Do you know the Flying Nun? I, I, I am aware it. of the Flying Nun <laughs> <laughs> because, of course, it's referenced in the goodies. Is it You Friend and UFO, where Tim becomes the Flying Nun or Super Nun? But I just wonder how many people even got the reference at the time. Yeah, it's that is a very odd thing about. You do wonder how much it just seems like you know a silly joke now was actually a reference at the time. Because one of the things that has really wrong-footed me over the years is in Monty Python's Flying Circus particularly the first two series there were lots of jokes about what were actually contemporary TV programmes at the time that have since really fallen off the radar to the extent that people just think it's a funny thing the Pythons have said or done the two big ones being there was a sketch directly referencing Zocco, the ridiculous late 60s Saturday morning children's show there is in the animation at the start of The Bishop, there's a direct reference to the big breadwinner hog opening titles that the audience have shrieking hysterics at. And I do remember thinking when I first saw, I would have been about 12, I think, when the BBC repeated that in the 80s, and thinking, why are they laughing so much at that? It was only years later when I saw Big Breadwinner Hog, I thought, oh, they're laughing because they know that that's that programme. There was all that trouble about the other week. 
And there, there are a couple of other things and references to in the set specific BBC Two art shows at the time and things like that. There's in the Gumby Flower arranging. It's more pronounced on live versions, but the way Michael Palin says chrysanthemums <laughs> is how Robert Wyatt says it on Dedicated to You But You Weren't Listening by Soft Machine, which, you know, obviously, let's just say Soft Machine stock has fallen over the years. They're not, you know, one of Britain's leading prog bands anymore, are you guys? But at the time, they were absolutely, you know, they are what the Pythons would have been listening to, what John Peel would have been playing every well, every day at one point on Radio 1, I suppose. So that would have been a reference that people got at the time. And these things do. I mean, if you look at the day-to-day now, do people know that the sketch about the dog flying the helicopter is <laughs> very, very closely based on 999, which is a BBC reality show presented by Michael Burke. And Chris Morris was the same walk with the same sort of coat on that he did in it and obviously the bureau was El Dorado and all kinds of things like that do things like things like that really do lose their meaning over time don't they it took me years to work out that is it the Attila the Hun show in Python is referencing oh, yes. the, the Debbie yeah. Reynolds Debbie show Debbie Reynolds show yeah yeah and it's only in the last couple of years that I was able to find the title sequence to the Debbie Reynolds show on YouTube and compare the two so so yeah the, the, this stuff Unless you've got the whole cultural context, it's quite hard to get all the jokes sometimes, yeah. But I do find that some stuff survives and gets repeated forever and ever. How many times have certain episodes of Dad's Army done the <laughs> done the rounds? <laughs> I heard that noise you made, yeah. Uh, <laughs> whereas other stuff sits in the archives mm-hmm. and just never never sees the light of day mm-hmm. and, and that that's our thing we, we have to mention the demise of uh, network dvd recently and network mm. dvd did such a good job educating us yeah. about mm. all these shows that we would never have seen so, so what what are some of the favourite shows that you've discovered that you you didn't know about? Well, I'll come back to favourites in a minute because you wanted to pick up on. You are right about some things just for no reason disappear. I mean, people say the goodies are the big one, but at least people even you know remember that. I will point to when you were recently on Goompod talking about Sykes, and you mentioned, and this is absolutely true, Sykes just seemed to disappear. In yeah. about 1980, and I love the specificness of that because that is true. Yeah. It was this programme that seemed to be ubiquitous when I was really young, and it's not been mentioned, I don't think, for that day. So this Dick Emery is another one. I remember being a constant on television, and it was though they just forgot about him one day. And I don't understand what the criteria is there, why some things are deemed to make the cut and some aren't. And there's no science to it. There's no logic at all. Well, is it down to individuals? Because there there was that rumour that one of the controllers of BBC Two just didn't like the goodies, so they just didn't get repeated. Well, you do have to wonder about that. And also, there is... I mean, they are the first to address this and accept this themselves. There is some... Even though, as I always say, 99% of the time they were on the right side, there was still some questionable material in a lot of episodes of The Goodies. And I don't think... You know, one of the obvious ones to reach for would be Kung Fu Capers. Yeah. I don't think even in 
2000, putting a 70s comedy with, no matter how brief it is, blackface in it on BBC Two would have been a great idea. I think it's a double-edged thing. I think some people just do suppress things out of personal taste, but equally, I think people think it's all a level playing field. Yeah. And it's not really. I mean, even The Prisoner, I would say, you know, there's, there's nothing racist in there. There's, you know, nothing particularly sexist. There are elements of it which I think would make it, for various reasons, unsuitable for, you know, plunking on at 7pm on ITV today. <laughs> you know, he gets beaten to a bloody pulp a lot in it. <laughs> in a really... In, not in the way they do it now, either. You know, with, like... It's always... What's his name, isn't it? Michael Billington out of UFO is playing a heavy in it. And, you know, really, sort of the glee they take... You know, the, the way it focuses in on their faces before they punch him. You know, so they're really enjoying it. Yeah. Things like that, some things just don't fly and we have to, what we have to do is accept that and find a way of working with that. I mean, one thing I can point to is a while back I did sleeve notes for the box set reissues of the Faulty Towers albums and I really pushed very heavily to have, I mean, there was some suggestion I think from elsewhere in, you know, branding and so on that maybe it would be better just not to mention the major's use of certain words at all and not draw attention to it. And my thinking was, but if it comes back out and, you know, somebody from either side of the debate latches onto that and makes a big thing of it, you know, either, you know, you'll have certain politicians waving around saying, you know, look, look, you can get hold of our beloved Faulty Towers. Somebody's going to try and ban this in a minute or alternatively (laughs) somebody would try and ban it. And I just thought if I acknowledge that in the sleeve notes and, you know, say when you see it on the iPlayer now, it's got a caption card before it saying, you know, this does contain language that in its context, you know, passed without comment. And I'm asking you to treat this mention of it here in the same capacity. I think... There are ways of... I mean, don't get me wrong, some things I should, I think should stay, not just locked in the archives, they should be set on fire. <laughs> <laughs> but other things, there are ways of making them palatable. It's just, it is such a delicate thing because there are archive fans who, and I'll be, I'll be as polite about this as I can because I understand some of their frustrations, but they get quite personally hurt if they feel there's any attempt to curtail what they enjoy. And I do understand that. You know, it's a feeling you can get somebody's trying to take away, you know, your right to enjoy something, which, you know, as far as you were concerned, you're doing harmlessly. I do sympathise with that, but it is better if everyone gets a little less hysterical in the reaction. On the other hand, there are bad faith actors who will get involved in arguments that they have no involvement in at all and, you know, stir things up. So it is a difficult, difficult balancing act. And I know I've gone way off the original question you asked me, but, I, you know, that, that is something that does exercise me a little, is we have to think more laterally about how you cannot do any... You know, you can't affect the present by attacking the past. You know, go after objectionable things that are being made now. But at the same time, we've got to accept that some things in some things we love a lot aren't for the modern age. Mm. And we have to do our best to present it in an acceptable way. I don't think anyone, I I won't say, I don't think anyone can argue with it because people will try to. I don't think anyone should, if you see what I mean. People like me, we are trying our hardest to make this stuff available, you know, when we're presented with problems like this. And I sometimes wish people would appreciate that a little (laughs) more. But you you did ask me what our favourite things I've discovered were. 
And I would say, I mean, I'm looking round my piles of DVDs now for inspiration. <laughs> Quite a few ITC series I knew nothing about. Gideon's Way, ah. I actually really like. Um, yeah. The Strange World of Gurney Slade, I'm not sure if that counts because I had seen that one episode that was repeated in the 90s, but that was a very major discovery for me. Funnily enough, it's tended to be ITV stuff because mm. when that's forgotten, that's completely forgotten. Whereas with the BBC, there's that ecosystem they had of, you know, programs like Telly Addicts and so on. You would see bits of things resurfacing or Wogan, the type of guest on the say. I won't do the voice, but, you know, oh, let's have a look at when you were in The Brothers or, you know, something like that. That, that You would get glimpses of these things. But ITV, sometimes these programmes are just names to me that I'd spotted in... Do you remember the IBA yearbook that your local library used to have? And I looked through that, and sometimes the things like spot things like, ooh, Mr Axelford's Angel. That sounds really good. And then you see it, it's about a secretary. But you know what I mean? There's that whole extra depth of lostness to ITV stuff because it's more ephemeral in some ways because it is made really underneath it all to get on the right side of advertisers and so it has a definite shelf life I, I remember in the early 90s there were there were two sort of bibles for TV sort of fans there was was it the encyclopedia of TV science fiction which was a huge oh, slab of a yes, thing yeah and also the Guinness book of classic TV Yes, which I saw a copy of in the free books box in my local train station the other day. <laughs> I mentioned it to Paul Cornell. He was delighted. <laughs> was absolutely thrilled. But yes, that what I mean, that's a book that gets a bit of a kicking now. But my view about things like that is somebody always has to go first. Mm. You will miss a season of, say, I think it was Danger Mouse that missed one off because nobody had done it before. Yeah. And if somebody else comes and builds on it, that's that's all the good. But that doesn't take away from the original achievements. That's why I get so annoyed with people kicking the Peter Haining Doctor Who books now. You know, say, I mean, yeah, it, it really is. When you see people say, oh, you know, it's, it's a disgrace next to what Andrew Pixley's done. I don't think Andrew would be very happy if he saw somebody saying that. But as well as that, how can they, how can they not appreciate just the thrill of that book landing very heavily in my hands on Christmas Day in 1983? And what, it's got information about every story ever? Wow, you know, I... We didn't have that. And I think it is wrong to devalue these things in retrospect. There's always something you can get from them as well. There are very few completely useless reference guides. But it is true that... I mean, I've had a couple of times myself when, you know, I've spent ages trying to find out something about, say, well, for example, BBC Records and Tapes or Comedy on Radio 3, asked in loads and loads of places and, you know, not got any response. And then the second I publish something, somebody will come along with a winky smiley face on the forum say, oh, Imho, I see he's got such and such a detail wrong, lol. Like, well, you could have told me. All the times, like, you know, somebody has to, as I say, go first. And I still have a lot of affection for the Guinness Book of Clatter British TV because it was a fusion of facts and opinion. And so many things are just either one or the other, mostly. I mean, the great thing about that book is the the sheer range of stuff it was prepared to put between its covers. I yeah. mean, there, there, there were shows that I might have had no interest in, but on the other hand, there were shows that had just never been talked about, really. So, yeah, it, it was it was a very important work, I think. And I remember thinking at the time, if I can collect all of these shows on DVD, 
or, or, or video rather i shall know everything there is to know about television and that that proved to that proved to be very wrong <laughs> Did you will network into existence by thinking that? <laughs> possibly, possibly, possibly. <laughs> I will say I always love networks, just commitment to releasing everything. Mm. I have mixed feelings about revealing this, but I remember my good friend Stephen O'Brien, the playwright, who obviously I've known since we were like, what, 11 or something. But we used to have a thing about whenever, because we were just, when the... I'm sure you guys are going to tell me you've got this now and you watch it all the time, but when the complete two in Clover came out <laughs> on that web, we were like, what the hell is that? And everything that turned up, into the, turned up in the sale, we were sending each other screenshots <laughs> saying, quick, before it sells out. Have we got it, Lisa? Uh, yes, I think so. Never watched it yet, but we got it. It's yeah. somewhere, as with all these things, it's somewhere in the house. <laughs> is it in Clover? <laughs> It's in a pile. It's in a pile. Yeah. <laughs> of clover. Of, of clover. Of, 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 yes, it's being compressed into an archaeological layer. <laughs> but, but what amazed me is finding out that there were two series called That's My Boy. Yes. <laughs> Both of which involved oh, yes. Bobby yeah. Yeah. Yes. That there's there's the one that you remember from the from the eighties, yeah. Lisa. Yeah. But there's an earlier version. Yes. With uh, Jimmy Clitheroe, Jimmy isn't it? Blooming Clitheroe, yeah. <laughs> see, I don't want that rescue from the archives. Are we, we have it. I can see it from here. It's it's looming, is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't like the idea of a looming Jimmy Clitheroe. <laughs> is it on top of a pile that's taller than Jimmy Clitheroe? Probably, yes. <laughs> but yes, I mean, I was going to say you're guilty of it, but it's yeah. not guilty, is no, it, Lisa? That no. you, you would just have a stab at anything... Yeah. Just because it looks interesting. Yeah. My my thing was I would if somebody brought something to my attention or there was one of the network sales, mm. you would have a look and I think, Oh, that looks interesting and I'd go to IMDB yeah. and see who was in it. And the more people in it that looked interesting, yeah, the more likely I was to buy it. So you were basing it on cast. Yes. Rather than anything else. Yeah. yeah. So That's... I mean I think my, my biggest one of those is the entire Sergeant Cork. Yeah. Which I because it was in the sale. So I just bought all of it. Yeah. So. But again, we'd never heard of Sergeant Cork, had no, we? No, Till no. now, what did a clip turn up on? Oh God, it was on one of those retrospectives, wasn't it? The, the what it was like in the seventies, and it was a clip or sixties. Yeah. It would be sorry. Yeah. The clip of Peter Salis as a Chinaman, not made up. Just Peter Salis, yeah. slightly slanty eyes, you know. Um, and instead of thinking that looks appalling, we're like, oh, that looks quite interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have more Peter Salis being racialist, yeah. shall I? So, so we, we got it. And yes, that episode is not, not the best. Not the best. <laughs> but in general, Sergeant Cork is fantastic. Yeah. Because Ted Willis has this real sense of justice. Mm. I think there's only one episode, we've still not completed the whole series, but there's only one episode where Sergeant Cork doesn't get the villain. Yeah. Apart from that, he always gets his man or woman. Well, yeah. I will say Sergeant Cork is directly responsible for me initially asking the both of you to do Looked and Familiar because I've been listening to around the archives for a while and it was there was a joke he made about Sergeant Cork. That I laughed at because I am in that weird position of being somewhere between archive obsession and the mainstream, I suppose. Mm. You know, I love the Fast and the Furious films and the Masked Singer and things like that. But 
I thought at that point, if they can make me laugh about Sergeant Cork, <laughs> they can make everyone laugh about, you know, well, Matchbox Cascade was one of the first things that you suggested. And yeah, it's absolutely true. I always love, I mean, I would say I don't have favourite episodes of Looks Unfamiliar. And that isn't a get out, it's because every right. guest is different and everything's a different experience. Like on the one hand, you know, you have the ones with Bob Fisher where it's me and him almost screaming, laughing throughout <laughs> it. And on the other, no less interesting, Tom Williamson, the historian. You know, there were some laughs in that, you know, but it was more serious discussion. So, you know, there is always that contrast. But one of the reasons I love the ones with you guys on so much is we seem to have that same weird sort of humour between two extremes. Yeah. And I never know where you're going to go next, <laughs> particularly. I'm... I can barely capable of talking when I think about it now, but when we somehow got to the idea of, of whether Barbara Cartland had visited Borley Rect. And your fault, Liz. written a book yes. on it. I can't even quite remember how we got there. It was a book of Greek legends yes. or something, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, it was, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I still haven't been able to find. No, I'm, I'm you sure you didn't This is the that. mystery no, of the disappearing it's... book of Greek legends. I'm absolutely positive it existed. Uh, I don't have it anymore. I must have, when I moved out of my parents, I must have not it was burned, taken was it? it with me. Or it, it got lost well before that. But I'm positive it exists. Because I saw, I saw there was somebody put an interview up with her on um, Twitter the other day. Yeah. And it's a, it's just amazing. It's it's like even, I mean, I think this was in the sort of late 80s. Mm. And the attitude was absolutely astounding yeah. of what she felt women should do. And you're like, mm, OK. Yeah. yeah. But now you say that, I'm thinking of that film with Margaret Rutherford, where she goes ghost hunting. Oh, God, yeah. Have you seen that, yeah. Tim? Oh, that's ringing a bell. What's it called? I can't, can't remember. Can't remember. Is, is it? Margaret Rutherford it, visits stately she homes. Goes to she goes to Longley yeah. to look for ghosts mm -hmm. or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. Which is a very strange thing. Um, well, because that's made me inadvertently think of. I think my favourite archive discoveries are things that I can't discover because that's made me think about Turn Out the Lights, the Coronation Sheet spin off with Arthur Lowe as Leonard Swindley setting up business as a ghost hunter, <laughs> which by all what? accounts. What? Started off as a comedy and got quite scary because he encountered genuine phantoms later in the series. Oh. And there's nothing left of that. And there are so many things I'm obsessed with where it's about the detective work, about what can we find out about this completely missing programme, like R3, like Witch Hunt, like Late Night Horror. I know there's one Late Night Horror, but, you know, I count things when there's only one episode of as missing, basically. On the margin, that'll be another one. The Tennis Elbow Foot Game. Anything like that where there's not much left beyond the Radio Times listings. A sort of... My favourites, in a way... Ironically, because you can't see them. I can understand that because uh, for, for some years now I've been mildly obsessed with trying to see the gnomes of Dulwich. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Tyler off of uh, Goon Pod claims that he remembers seeing it. So mm. I, I, I've been trying to invent a mind probe ever since <laughs> to try and suck his memories out. <laughs> I am also convinced there was a, a clip on Teleaddicts. Really? I'm fairly sure. It may, it may be one of the things where it was just a photo and I'm, you know, I mm. thought I saw it move. But <laughs> I um, thought I saw a sort of telerecorded clip. But 
I met, that may be a confused memory, to be honest with you, because uh, you would have been very confused, you know, by the name the gnomes of Dulwich by Terry Scott dressed as a gnome, <laughs> irrespective of whether it was moving images or not. <laughs> I think there's about three photos and an audio trailer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, that, and that's it. Who, who kept an audio trailer of the gnomes of Dulwich? <laughs> somebody, Sometimes there's somebody too much did. interest in things. <laughs> Somebody did. Yeah. The thing I would really like to see again, and I, I have an image in my head of it, hmm. is, and I think it's a schools programme, and the schools programmes are virtually impossible to find anything about. Yeah. But it's, it's Michael Williams as Richard III, and he's just talking to the camera about his life, and I think it's almost like he was on trial or something. Right. And he's talking about his life and whether we did kill the princes in the tower and all that sort of thing. But I can't find anything about it. Yeah. And it's slightly frustrating. Have you got an idea what year that might be? Well, it would be mid to, well, sort of mid-80s, I guess. Yeah. Mid to late 80s. So you'd hope it survives. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's virtually impossible because there's nobody's done a history of ITV school. And I think it was an ITV schools programme rather than a BBC schools programme. Mm. It might have been a BBC one, but nobody's done a history of schools programmes. Well, there you are. There's an opening for you, Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> Something to do in your spare time. <laughs> well, there was that site broadcast for schools, but yeah. I don't know if that's still around or not. But yes, I mean, it led me to buy um, playing Shakespeare, which is all different actors doing different bits of Shakespeare and telling you how to how you do this bit of it and how the and it's got an amazing cast. It's like Patrick Stewart and David Suchet and yeah. Judy Dent and <laughs> Michael Williams and Anthony Cher, and it's like my gosh. It's not Nigel know? Planer, is it? How to no, do it's Shakespeare. Not <laughs> But yeah, and also I have to say, Tim, recently, and and I do mean very recently, mm. as in about three days ago, or was it two days? Two days. Two days ago, yeah. Yeah. we happened to turn on the radio, and you were on uh, BBC Six Music talking yes. talking about theme tunes and other BBC records recording. So, can you tell us a little? bit about how that came about and uh, why you're the go-to man at the moment for this sort of thing well the bbc records and tapes thing i mean i had i had always collected what i was interested in from their output and it became more of an interest over the years as i mentioned on the radio it was when i started to put together a list just for my own terms of reference and what they've released because it's interesting it's like when you look at rod stewart in the 60s you can tell more about what was going on looking at him than than at the Beatles because you know the Beatles were the Beatles throughout the 60s they were more or less leading what was going on they had their own particular style whereas Rod was jumping on every bandwagon that there was in the hope of scoring a hit and he didn't for the whole decade you know so he went through his folky phase and his mod phase and his hard rocking phase and so on and BBC records and tapes what came out there is an indication of what was popular with viewers and, well, and listeners to the radio at the time, rather than what, you know, funnily enough, as we would just say, History Records was popular. There, there wasn't actually a Sykes album, sadly. I, mean, <laughs> I wish there was. With the, the trombone on the cover and the bass drum, that would have been brilliant. But, yeah, it just started to fascinate me more and more. There are all these glimpses of broadcasters where their names are lost to history almost and programs everyone's forgotten about and reminders of things that aren't that forgotten but people don't really talk about and it just got more and more interesting the more I looked into it but I didn't want it to be dry and I was inspired by I used to get record collector magazine quite a lot because in those days you know there were very few sources of information about in inverted commas old stuff 
And that was one, because although it was mostly about, you know, collectible albums and so on, there would sometimes be stuff about soundtracks in it. And also, in the want ads at the back, there were always people looking for TV and film-related albums, including one poor guy who I remember repeatedly advertised looking, looking for the Herbs album. And there wasn't one. <laughs> I was going to say, and I feel so sorry for him. <laughs> Because maybe he meant the Adventures of Parsley one, but he didn't say that. He said the Herbs LP, 1968, and there wasn't one. But they would sometimes have features in it where, say, for example, there was a sort of album-by-album guide to, say, Vertigo Records, the prog rock imprint from the about 1969 to 72. It was probably at its height. But in amongst all, you know, your Black Sabbaths and your Tudor Lodges and your Dr. Zeds, there'd be something like a straight Ike and Tina Turner album. And I always found it very amusing in a way that I couldn't put my finger on it. You'd have this guy who didn't understand, you know, this music from another genre, writing about it and, you know, trying to be nice without really understanding it. And that informed a lot of the approach I took to writing about things like the Birdsong albums on BBC Records and Tapes. (laughs) And the one that's just church bells was, you know, to get a bit of levity into there. And I love describing the the terrible cover art they had at some point, including this one where it looks like Tony Hancock is melting. <laughs> <laughs> and I was very, very pleased that Ricardo Waterborne, musician, kept messaging me on Twitter to say, I saw your description of whatever album it was and looked it up and, oh my God, it's exactly like you said. (laughs) But I just thought nobody else was going to tell the story of this label, so I did. I did it myself and it was a... Particularly the second one, the albums one, was a, a long journey, it really was. Tracking stuff down got easier because I found more people who were interested in it who had copies of things. And, you know, you don't need to then go hunting or bidding on eBay. You know, you can think, you know... For example, the Hopwood Family, which is a study series album based on the school's radio show, which is very hard to get hold of. But you ask around your contacts, somebody sends it to you. You know, there's always, there's a Paul Putner, there's an Andy Lewis, there's a, well, Bob Fisher. You know, there are people who like that, who have these things and have them encoded and just send it to you. I mean, that's the miracle of the modern age, really. That's the, I think in some ways the internet has damaged the idea of research a little because people don't have to go hunting for information and make it all add up anymore. They can just be delivered what is sometimes wrong information in one go but the other upside to it is it does make it that much easier to get hold of missing pieces of the informational jigsaw and so that made the second one a lot easier it was mainly it was writing about a lot of this stuff took a very long time because like i say with the birdsong albums you're in danger of going insane (laughs) but what's interesting is that again you're preserving the names of of important people who are perhaps in danger of being forgotten because whenever they show a clip of something like Play Away, they'll always show the clip with Jeremy Irons and Tony Robinson in, won't they? Mm. Because they're the famous people. But somebody like Tony Arthur is much more forgotten. But in many ways, I think she's a more interesting character. Because uh, you don't get many witches on the telly, do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> you did get a lot of witches in children's TV in the 60s, which is really weird for reasons I can't explain. You know, whether it was... 
the Pogles or Bewitched or the Singing Ringing Tree. But yeah, that is something I, I absolutely love doing. It's my favourite thing to do is to bring these shows, these people, these records or whatever back in a way that, you know, like you say, they don't get talked about, they don't get discussed. Two of the most important things I think I've ever done have been both been for Doctor Who magazine, which was one was when they did the feature about the Doctor Who Sky Ray Ice Lolly tie-in about the trading cards. And I managed to find out that the fake Patrick Troughton in the advert, who's, you know, somebody's mate. It's always, whenever somebody has to be Troughton in something, it's somebody's mate with a coat <laughs> and the stovepipe hat. Putting their um, hands over their face. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's, it's actually Jerry Grant, the actor and former pop star, putting his hand over his face. And that is something he has been, he has become in the intervening years, just a meme almost amongst Doctor Who fans. You know, the wrong Patrick Troughton in the advert. My first thought was, this guy had a career. You know, even just knowing his name, I knew he sang one of the single versions of the Fireball XL5 beam. You look into it, he was quite a name at one point. Who'd fallen on maybe slightly reduced career circumstances by the mid-60s, which I assume is how he wound up in this advert. Because he belonged to a previous generation of light entertainment, I think it's fair to say. And maybe hadn't reacted well to the rise of Mercy Pete. But... (laughs) But I went out of my way to, you know, cram in as much as I could. As much as, you know, because I think what a lot of people don't understand is you have to edit with information about, well, whether it's biographical or, you know, production or factual information. Edit it into something that's interesting and relatable. So I got in as much as I could about him. But I, I really love that I gave him something back because he's, you know, he's so much more than that. Or at least, like so many people should be thought of as so much more than that. The other was when I did in the bookazine, as they call them, about the 25th anniversary series from 1988, and I did a feature about the music in it. I did a box out about the Mudlarks, who were featured twice in Doctor Who around that time, who were a massive doo-wop trio. It was two brothers and a sister in the late 50s. They were absolutely pretty much the biggest stars in the UK for about two years. And one of them married Layla Williams, the original Blue Peter presenter. And if you go back and look at the newspaper archives, what became the tabloids were all over that. And the thing is, you now cannot even get, there has never been a Mudlark's greatest hits. And it meant a great deal to me to give them this box out, you know, basically saying they were really important once and they should still be, you know, I don't mean they should still be now as in, you know, (laughs) they should be playlisted on Six Music, but... You know what I mean? These people deserve their credit, even retrospectively. It's important to remember, yeah, yeah. You say about records, and I I certainly had a few TV-based records in my collection. Obviously, I had the soundtracks of, you know, things like Faulty Towers, and um, I had a Monty Python record or two. But you had the Muppet Show album. Is that right, Lisa? Mm Because I know I did. Yeah, the, um, the second one, I think. You had the second one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Had the, we had the second one as well, yeah. I wonder what's up with the first one. No, no, I think I've got a copy of the first one somewhere. Yeah, yeah that's um, the one with Pigs in Space on. Yeah, because the first so. one's got Veterinarian's Hospital and the yeah. second one's got Pigs in Space. That's how you can tell the difference between yeah. them. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, rec- records, I guess, are, are you know stuff that people tend to tend to keep for decades. Whereas I noticed that you'd done on your website a, a piece about board games as well. And I was somewhat surprised to find out there was the George and Mildred dice game. <laughs> yes. What, what was going on that you think it would be easy to do an actual George and Mildred board game where 
I don't know, Tristan has, is using your spare tyre as a space station. <laughs> it's a turn. <laughs> but, yeah, well, why? They, they didn't play dice on TV, did they? <laughs> I'm not aware. But I remember. And there's also the Morecambe and Wise game, where it's basically Connect Four, but with their faces. And Ernie has a look of evil glee on the box while he's playing it. The, the emu game looks... Um, very frightening. It's just so Emu's sad. giant head, isn't it? I mean, th- <laughs> yeah. there, there is no corresponding giant Rod Hull head, is there? No. You've got Fortunately. to get. <laughs> you've just got to get counters in it or something. Yeah. Well, I've mentioned this many times, but I had the Rod Hull and Emu annual when I was young, and I genuinely felt cheated that there were stories in it where Emu had solo adventures, and I was annoyed <laughs> we didn't get any Rod solo adventures. <laughs> sort of him doing his accounts or something. <laughs> I did and possibly still do have an emu puppet. Was it? Now, this is, this has come up on Looks of Familiar. Was it mm. when they finally... I wonder if it's something to do with not being able to get the dye right, but eventually they did one in the proper colours, but previously there's a slightly more feral orange version of it. Oh, no, mine's a blue quite one. Quite a few people I knew had. No, mine's a blue one, and I've got videotape mm. evidence of it from the mid-90s, <laughs> so I can show you me operating an emu. But are you... When it comes to emu, are you EBC One era or are you Pink Windmill era? What does emu I, mean to you? I'm definitely EBC One because I can remember thinking, you know, there is that whole thing about when people go to ITV yeah. and the results are rarely ever good. And I remember thinking, oh no, this is prime gone to ITV territory. Because <laughs> it was originally Emu's World before the Pink Windmill show. Yeah. And I remember seeing the opening titles of that were, I think, doesn't it have a kind of radio waves going through space and it zooms into a beacon with Emu in an inset? And I remember thinking, this isn't Emu's broadcasting. <laughs> As a very young child, feeling that crushing disappointment that would follow many times when people jumped ship from one channel to the other. Because don't forget, it's seldom ever worked when people went from ITV to the BBC as well. Yeah. But ABC One is an example of a show I would love to have had a DVD release. <laughs> and you can add probably uh, the Innis Book of Records to that. Although even that has got some problematic areas, I, I would say. It has, but quite often people do think there's... A, I'm not accusing either of you of this, obviously, because I, I know you know sort of more about the mechanics of it. But people assume there's some kind of grand conspiracy to keep these things in unavailability. Whatever. Quite often it's just contractual problems and so on. Because I can actually... I think I'm free to mention all of these now. A while back I did sleeve notes for a BBC audio book. So that shows you know, how long ago it was of the not only but also albums of the singles on the fourth disc which you know was sorted with everyone with Dudley Moore's estate with Lynn Cook with everyone but there was a contractual issue stop them coming out and I assume it's the same issue that means you know we now only ever get edited versions of the best of what's left of not only but also (laughs) on the original episodes there's something that somebody signed a long time ago has left some kind of contractual mess the other ones are Hardwick House which was going to come out on DVD on network which again I'd gone as far as writing the booklet for that they got clearance from everyone but it failed compliance at ITV 
It wasn't long after Saxgate, but they didn't elaborate on their reasons. But I suspect it was probably the Easter episode where there is a... I mean, if anyone's actually seen Hardwick House, the episodes are pretty... You know, that even were broadcast. We're pretty brutal, I must say. But there is a gag about a falling cross in the Easter one. I'll just leave it there. And so that that was the reason that that was stymied. And can't go too far into this, but Rutland Weekend Television, it was just a contractual thing. It was literally that Eric Idle really wanted it to come out, but there is... Just just paperwork from years ago and these things are often insurmountable and I know it would seem to the outside world like oh well surely they can just sort it out well it's not as easy as that really you know you try telling your bank that when you got a dispute with them surely you can sort it all out see how far you get with that I mean, in this book of records, just a single episode, it's remarkable how many guest star spots there are mm. on there. Because mm. I think, isn't Johnny Morris in the first episode? Uh, Michael Palin certainly plays a policeman in, in one. And I think Percy Viv, Edwards... Viv Stanshaw's in one, isn't Yeah, Viv Stanshaw, yeah. I'm led to believe there are a lot of contractual issues over. <laughs> There's Percy Edwards in a, in a field doing bird noises. Yeah. Uh, is, is John Betjeman on there as well? I think so. Yes, he is, isn't yeah. he? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's. And I was thinking, like, you see some of these songs, and there's about six dozen people in them, uh, sort of mm. singing and dancing. Would you actually have to clear all of them, or, or, or what? I really don't know. It would depend on the arrangements at the time. I mean, I'm led to believe. One of the reasons, I mean, there are other reasons, should we say, but one of the reasons that there hasn't been any release on DVD of Not the Nine O'Clock News beyond the video compilations from the 90s is that it is very hard to track down some of the writers now. Yeah. And the contracts at the time did allow for residuals, so that makes that difficult. Yeah, because I think that's a problem with Vision On, isn't mm. it, that... And there's so many animators involved. Oh, yes, yeah. And some of them are like from Czechoslovakia and stuff like that. I was going to say, you know, it might be like, have you ever seen the website of the man who created The Little Green Man, the ITV show? And there's this bizarre tale about how the rights who ended up behind the Eastern Bloc or something. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to get it back and getting letters saying, we do not know of Little Green Man, sincerely a person. (laughs) I'm exaggerating slightly for comic effect, but that was fascinating and actually quite terrifying at the same time. But yeah, it, it is often just a contractual mess, really. Yeah, I mean that's why I was so pleased to see that single epi- episode of Vision on repeated mm. on on BBC Four recently. I just thought, thank God, at least one's got out, you know. Because <laughs> I, I, didn't we talk to uh, Clive Doig briefly? Mm. And I said, I'd, I'd love Vision on to come out, and he said, well, the trouble is nobody just nobody really knows what it is anymore. No, and mm. and nobody yeah. nobody's really bothered about it. That's the thing. So. Yeah, well, that's one of my main kind of aims is I don't like the way, and this, you know, this goes for films and music and books and all kinds as well, is that people want to keep these things. There are people that want to keep everything obscure so that they can be the best at liking things. And I'm not, I don't believe in that at all. I think go round and say, this is brilliant. Tell Kate Thornton on Instagram that she might like Children of the Stones. You know, everything like that. And I found it, thought it was interesting. I mean, one of the really sad things about network collapsing is it taken us so long to get the intruder cleared. And, you know, I did, I wasn't involved in any of this, I should say. But, you know, for network to find the original film prints and clean them up and scan them and to get it finally released. And then it's on sale for like a matter of months. That 
is actually quite sad. But one of my big things doing the commentary, I think it's really interesting that it was a deliberate plan for me with the commentaries on that and the owl service to try and present them as if I was talking to, you know, say Charlie Brooker or somebody rather than, you know, somebody off an archive TV forum, <laughs> should we say. You know, to talk about these things as though they were common currency, so everyone had a right to be interested in them. And there's a, there's a very snippy review of the Owl Service Blu-ray on Amazon with somebody saying they found me irritating, which is fair enough. A lot of people do find me irritating. <laughs> most people who know me in real life. But you know what I mean? That that seemed to, Everything about it seemed to have touched a nerve with him, not just my commentary, but about the fact that, you know, it's this special magical thing and it's been taken away by being made available. But the other one was a review of The Intruder with somebody really laying into me and calling me an idiot, which you can call you can call me irritating if you like. I don't particularly like being called an idiot because, you know, I've done a lot of research on that about, you know, John Rowe Townsend's career and the possible links with the London Jazz Four, which is a whole other story in itself. And, you know, what was actually why some of those weird shots were in it and how old Milton Johns actually was at the time, because he looks about 60 in that and he's absolutely not. But it's interesting that that comment was followed later on by saying there was a treat in episode six, which was a teenage girl character played by an overrated actress, I should say, but appearing naked. And like, mate, you can't be calling me an idiot if you're saying that a couple of sentences later but I felt that both of those were fueled but obviously you know my commentaries are not going to be for everyone but that is sort of resistance to the idea that we're letting people in on these secrets and I say nonsense stop having them as secrets anyone can like well Sergeant Cork I mean I'm not saying anyone is going to like Sergeant Cork you know but it is there for everyone to discover it if they want to. That's why Talking Pictures TV is so big. That's why Doctor Who did so well on Twitch, because they just said, here you are, here's this thing. You can like it if you want. Nobody's putting pressure on you. I think that's really important, actually. I think with Doctor Who on Twitch, it's normally, you know, when the repeats are like, you know, the first story or whatever, you know, the people yeah. say, oh, oh, this is significant. You must pay <laughs> attention, pay it due respect. Whereas, you know, they just splurge a load of episodes on the streaming platform for kids and they respond to it really well and that's how i think it should be done well i remember we we sat down for like hours watching Mm. all this stuff on a tiny little screen didn't we Mm. of stuff that we'd seen before but yes. <laughs> we, we we weren't watching what was on the screen. We was re- we were reading what was in the chat to the side of it. Yeah, it was fascinating, wasn't it? The way they invested in Ben and Polly, which yeah. you know you'd be hard pushed to find fans who who were that excited about Ben and Polly because half their stuff doesn't exist. Well, more than half actually. But that that phrase London 1965 <laughs> in capital letters. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean. I agree that, you know, just just make this stuff available and people will decide for themselves whether they like it or not. Um, People aren't stupid. They'll either like it or they won't, and for their Mm -hmm. own reasons. Mm -hmm. And their reasons are usually quite valid, so yeah. But um, we're we're rapidly running out of time again, which is which is amazing. So thank you for that. But there was one important question I had to ask Tim. Go on. It's a character that's a stalwart of BBC science fiction. Um, it's been played by multiple actors over time. So, who is your favourite Captain Zep? <laughs> <laughs> the first one. You do know there was, you know, Take Two, the BBC viewer 
Children's BBC feedback show presented yeah. by somebody we can't name now. Mm, yes. He's been cancelled. But there was a furious debate between two children in the studio audience oh, about which was the best Captain Zep. <laughs> Why is the first Captain Zep better, though? Any reason? He was more square-jawed and serious. All right. Whereas the it's a bit like the difference between Dick Barton and who's a more whimsical contemporary Dick Barton? Dick Barton and Paul Temple. There you right, go. Okay. I mean they're both great, but you know if you want your your rugged heroics, you go to Dick Barton every time. See, I you, quite like you'd the second, go the other way. Yeah, wouldn't I, like, you, Lisa? I quite like the second second Captain Zep because I find him. I don't um... dislike him. It's all it's all Captain Zep. The more Captain Zep, the better. We should still we should have had a woman Captain Zep by now as well. <laughs> And I've lots of people saying, not my captain. <laughs> With a, a, a gif backwards of that bit from Dead Poets Society. <laughs> they stand off the desks and they can say, oh, captain, not my captain. <laughs> but I was impressed that you remembered what Solve stood for when you were on the radio the other day. Yes. Because <laughs> I wanted that badge so badly. <laughs> and I never got one. I think they even were selling them at the Children's BBC exhibition at the Liverpool International Garden Festival in 1984. And I think I wasn't allowed loud one for some reason isn't in the second season you you don't get a proper badge no it's just a sticker isn't it's it it's a sticker in the yeah. second season yeah, it's mm. like they've run out of money because the budget's been cut yeah, yeah. It's all gone Is that because they were saving hair? money to fund the launch of the BBC daytime service which is the excuse <laughs> given for everything round them yes you can't have any more proper badges yeah <laughs> I'm just, I'm just amazed that, that Tracy Charles can walk down those stairs in those heels without looking. Because <laughs> didn't, didn't, didn't we Twitter her? We did about Twitter it. about it. Yeah, and she, she, she was quite proud of it, wasn't yeah. she? Yeah, she was fond of it. So. Yeah, she, she didn't deny she was in Captain Zep. Yeah. So <laughs> that's you do find that people are prouder of these things. I mean, one thing I was, I always come back to is there was a film made by the cast and crew of Boone without Michael Elphick called I Bought a Vampire Motorcycle. I think in 1989, Anthony Daniels is in it as a priest, but Neil Morrissey's the lead as a bloke with a, basically, well, with a vampire motorcycle. It was sort of like a, a British horror film for the Robin of Sherwood era, should we say. But I remember he was on Richard and Judy once, and uh, they said just as the interview was closing, you know, I, I'm sorry, I just got to say, it says here in the film called I Bought a Vampire Motorcycle, and his face lit up. And he said, that was a work of genius. I'm so proud of that. <laughs> and they looked bemused by his response. But quite often, people are really proud of these small things they did. And that, that ties back to everything I've been saying, that, you know, it is wrong to just judge things on their prominence or otherwise, really. I, I think there's a lot of stuff that deserves to be remembered that isn't. So I, I think that's that's why looks unfamiliar is you know is 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 a wonderful thing, be, because you, you well, are thank you very much you you are preserving you are preserving the memories of stuff because it's all it's ultimately it's all the work of people isn't it and and people that you know deserve to be to be recognised mm-hmm. so you know that that's I, I think it's something you should be proud of that you're doing you're doing good work shall we say that's a, that's my point of view. Anyway, we've I think we've come to our hour. So, Tim, what have you got lined up? Anything you want to plug? 
I'm working on a couple of things at the moment. They're in the um, this isn't a secret thing. They're in the stages where you know they're not certain yet. So there may be some exciting news about things soon. Who knows? But I am working on another anthology of some of my features, which should be out relatively soon. And I may have a very exciting looks and familiar guest lined up, but we will see about that closer to the time. I'm actually struggling to think of anything I can directly <laughs> say at the moment about from top of the box volume two you know that is currently out there what's your website for people to visit timworthington.org and i say go straight to the looks of familiar with the picture of john inman's album (laughs) lead image you won't be disappointed no i guess you might be dodging a shower of hazelnuts (laughs) (laughs) well i think it was down to a vortex that's that's the thing (laughs) it's definitely a vortex Uh, suck them up yeah (laughs) Okay, Tim, thank you very much indeed. And uh, thank, thank you, you for joining for us tonight. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.